Well, we've been talking together about the uh, Word of God, and uh, this morning we're going to continue just with a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of history about the New Testament and its authenticity. You remember last week we were talking about, or last time we were together, it's been two weeks since I was here, uh, we were talking about the uh, discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus and how in, um, in the musty library, if you please, the piles of old manuscripts there in, in St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, there was discovered a, an ancient manuscript which contained the entire Old Testament and New Testament. The, uh, the most complete of all the manuscripts and what was believed to be one of the most ancient. And as further um, study would reveal, the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, we now believe, was one of those manuscripts that were commissioned by the Emperor Constantine in 331. And um, along with the Codex Vaticanus, these, uh, these uh, manuscripts exist as the earliest of the complete, uh, I guess you would say, uh, copies of the, the Old and New Testament. However, even though this compared favorably with the rest of the uh, manuscripts that were in existence then, even though there, were, there was good evidence from the Codex Sinaiticus that the Bible hadn't been tampered with by rash and, and, uh, and uh, dishonest hands, there were still the critics who said, wait a minute, that would have been in the 4th century, 331, when Eusebius was commissioned by Constantine to, to make these 50 copies of the New Testament, or the, of the Bible. What about between the 1st century, when the Bible was supposedly, supposedly written, and all the way down to the 4th century, when these earliest manuscripts have, uh, exi- have been found? What about that? Um, if they were indeed found, uh, written by the apostles... Perhaps they should be discovered. Um, manuscripts earlier should be discovered. And so the, the question was, the challenge for the Christian believers in the Bible was to produce the merest fragment of a manuscript. But between the first century, and you can fill that in if you're following along in your little note sheet here, between the first century and the fourth century, when these various codexes were supposedly um, written. Now, the critics had something on their side. It's called science. They believed that this was rather impossible, that a mere fragment even of the New Testament would be discovered, even if it had been written by the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, as the believers uh, insisted it had been. The reason was because in the 4th century, the material that was was being used was sort of like a leather-type material we called vellum. And um, vellum was very durable, and it would last through the centuries. V-E-L-L-U-M was the, um, was the name of the, this material. But the earlier manuscripts would have been written not on vellum, but on papyrus. Now, papyrus was a more um, uh, plant-based material, and it was like paper you would, you would uh, consider today. And you know how paper is rather fragile, right? Even the books that were written, I, I have a love for books. And um, in my library, I have many books that were written in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And so they're, they're, um, they're dating back not far, I mean, closer to the time when the printing press and modern paper was invented. And what we didn't realize was that there was, there was in, in many papers, there was acid and other um, 
uh, the pH of the paper would determine the fact that over time that paper would sort of self-destruct. It would basically dissolve itself. So some of my old books you have to be very careful with because the paper is very fragile. Well, imagine paper lasting for 2,000 years. I mean, come on. And so the critics knew that papyrus was not likely to have lasted from the first century all the way down to the 19th or 20th century when they were making these claims. Now, as we, as we look at history, however, we can see that step by step, older and older evidences were discovered that would lead us today to conclude that the Bible, in fact, is reliable. And we're going to look at some of those steps yet this morning, talking about the New Testament particularly, because we already talked about the Old Testament in previous uh, visits together. The first discovery after, after um, 1859 and the, um, the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus, um, the first such discovery was by a Mrs. Lewis and a Mrs. Gibson. Now, they are, they are interesting people because they were both Orientalists. They were both professors at Cambridge, Cambridge University. They were uh, professors in Oriental Studies. And um, these Mrs. Uh, Lewis and Mrs. Gibson were twin sisters. And they were working together. They were professors together. And they were doing research together. Now, they went all the way to the Sinai Peninsula, to the, to the monastery there at St. Catherine's, and they began to try to get access to those mountains and mounds of moldering manuscripts. And uh, you remember, after, after uh, Tischendorf, Dr. Tischendorf had borrowed the Codex Sinaiticus and then not returned it, given it instead as a gift to the Tsar of Russia, the monks at St. Catherine's were not that interested in letting the Westerners come back in and take their... Uh, manuscripts. And so it took two twin sisters to break down the barriers that had been erected and eventually these ladies won the confidence of these monks and they began to go through those manuscripts again. The first thing they found was not actually a copy of the, the whole Bible, but it was a partially erased Syriac copy of some of the Gospels that all the experts agreed had to have been written before the year of 200 A.D. Now that's backing us up 131 years at least from where the Codex Sinaiticus was. This is the a copy of the Syriac New Testament or Gospels that these two sisters, these twin sisters found in St. Catherine's Monastery. Now before the world hardly had opportunity to react to these sisters' um, discovery. Dr. Ezra Abbott made another discovery, and this was a commentary of the four Gospels in Armenian, which, again, the experts were forced to agree, had to have been written around the year, or even before the year, of 170 A.D. 170 A.D. Now, this, these contact, these, um, this, this commentary was actually, we know now, was a translation into Armenian of a commentary that had originally been written in Greek. And so a few years later, well, a number of years later, actually, we come down to 1920. And uh, 1920, a group of British Army officers made a, a discovery at Dura, which uh, was right on the banks of the Euphrates River. They found an ancient Roman fort 
And the Romans had actually built this fort, as I recall the, the history, they, they had built the fort from ruins of a church. So they were sort of excavating down through the different civilizations. There had been, the Roman ruins were the most obvious, but as they continued excavating, they found the ruins of a Christian church. And in the ruins of the Christian church, they found fragments of this original Greek commentary, the same one that Dr. Ezra Abbott had discovered in Armenian. They found this commentary, or pieces of it, in Greek, the original language they believe it had been written in. Now, from the basis of this excavation of the old church, they could date this Greek commentary all the way back to the year 150. So this pushes it back another 20 years from the Armenian text. Do you understand? So the, the time is marching backwards piece by piece. It's not looking so good for the critics of the New Testament because this is the, this is the point that was being made. If there was a commentary on the banks of the Euphrates on the Gospels in the year 150, that means that the Gospels themselves had to have been written before that, Right? And that means that they had to have been written long enough before for them to have been circulated and for the commentaries to have been written. It also means that they had to have been around long enough for those Gospels to be considered authoritative, to be, to be um, respected, and to be commented upon, right? These weren't just ordinary letters that someone may have found along the way. These were books that scholars were commenting and writing commentaries on. Now, moving a little bit further, we find uh, more evidence being amassed. We see in 1930, a large library of biblical papyri. Now, this is the amazing thing. While the experts thought that the papyrus would not survive the centuries, God preserved various pieces of papyrus in different ways. In this situation, he uh, he had... He preserved it through the dry, arid conditions of the desert in Egypt. The desert sands kept this papyrus, this delicate material, uh, intact for those centuries. And um, in the Egyptian Coptic graveyard, how do you like finding manuscripts in a graveyard? (laughs) But this is what happened. In 1930, a large library of biblical papyri was discovered in an Egyptian Coptic graveyard near the Nile. And um, this is known today as the Chester Beatty Collection. And as I recall, it is actually um, owned and preserved today at the University of Michigan. And so um, if you wanted to take a look at this collection, it's not that far away from us today. This contained 12 manuscripts. Um, I believe there were eight from the Old Testament, three from the New Testament. These manuscripts included the Gospels, Acts, and all of Paul's letters. And it is agreed that these would have dated back to around the year 8200. Now, I realize that's a little after 150. But again, this is showing that all the way in Egypt, where the Christian church was, um, not just in, um, in what we would today call Iraq, but throughout the entire region, the Bible was being disseminated, being spread and that takes time to happen when it's all being done by hand and being carried by hand. It's not like email. It gets from one place to another very quickly. So this is, we now know these books were being revered long before the critics were saying they had even been written. But perhaps the most interesting, the oldest fragment of all, 
It wasn't even preserved by Christian hands at all. And to me, this is an amazing story because I can imagine some sacrilegious person who didn't believe in the Christian faith at all was taking these sacred scriptures of the Christians and tearing them into pieces and using them for trivial, ordinary pursuits. Isn't that sort of sacrilegious? I mean, they didn't believe in it, and so might as well, right? But what they didn't know was that in treating the scriptures in this way, they would be providing the world with the greatest evidence yet of their antiquity and authenticity. Some careless, irreverent, non-Christian hands used portions of the Gospel of John to wrap an Egyptian mummy. And scientists would be discovering this mummy in the 20th century. And this Egyptian mummy, we believe, was wrapped from the rest of the evidence in this mummy's tomb, was wrapped with portions of the book of John in the first half of the second century, between, between 100 and 150. Doubtless, the oldest fragment that we have still today, preserved not by Christians who wanted to give us evidence, but preserved by someone who probably wanted to destroy the Bible and thought it is inconsequential. Wrapped around Egyptian mummy and then discovered today. It's not a large fragment. It's not much larger than the size of a man's hand. It contains um, a portion of the book of John, but it's clear evidence that the Bible, as early as 100 A.D., which we would say was only 10 years or so after John wrote the Gospel, or we don't know, sometimes between 80, late 80s and 100, that we believe John wrote the Gospel, the Gospel had already of John had already been carried down to Egypt by the early part of the next century and um, was being used to wrap an Egyptian mummy. God is good, isn't He? And God, I believe had his hand over his scriptures. I believe that there is, it is not an accident that the Bible is the most authenticated book of antiquity. And I want you to just fill in the blanks here. I don't care if you fill in the rest, it's, but I think this is very impressive. Um, if you get to our last point here, the manuscript evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament far exceeds that of any other document in history. Let me give you the numbers. The number of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, over 5,300. Now, they're not all as old as, as uh, obviously, the Codex Sinaiticus, but preserved around the world in the Eastern Church and also in the Western Church, we have these manuscripts, and um, there's an amazing agreement between them. 5,300 what would be considered ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Copies of the Latin Vulgate, preserved today, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, 8,000 copies. 8,000 copies exist today of Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And other early manuscripts, these would be partial manuscripts, part of a Bible, part of a book in many different languages, Syriac and Armenian and, and uh, many other languages, over 9,300 other manuscripts, portions of the Bible, preserved in different ways. Each has their own story. But each one is telling the same bottom line, and that is the Bible can be trusted. Now, what's interesting is if you look, this is the Bible is the most authenticated book of antiquity. The next most authenticated book is Homer's Iliad. Okay? That is runner up. It comes in second place. You know how many copies of Homer's Iliad 
exists today to authenticate that work? 643. The second most authenticated ancient work, Homer's Iliad, we find 643 ancient copies of today. Can you compare 5,300, 8,000, 9,300, compare that with 643. It's by a long ways a well-preserved manuscript, wouldn't you agree? God is good to give us confidence. Two doctors, two um, professors, archaeologists, who spent their lives 40 years comparing the manuscripts, doctors Westcott and Hort, and they've written numerous books on the um, on the manuscripts, they were, you know, writing and studying about them as they were being discovered. In many cases, it says if comparative trivialities such as change of order, the insertion or omission of the article with proper names and the like are set aside, the words, in our opinion, subject to doubt. It means when you compare all the manuscripts, it's not clear, you know, which words were really intended there. The words, in our opinion, subject to doubt, can hardly amount to more than a thousandth part of the New Testament. I believe that God is good in preserving His Word for us today. And today we're going to be talking about the disobedience of the Word. We've already been looking at a number of the characteristics of God's Word. We started with the inevitability of the Word, remember? How Balaam learned that no matter how much you don't like what the Bible says... It's still going to take place, right? Because God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And so the inevitability of the word, we looked at Peter and the relevance of the word. Peter made his mistake in first applying the word of God to everyone else around him. And then he realized that it applied to him too. We've looked at the urgency of the word. Remember that? There's there's not time for us just to, to think that the word of God isn't important. Um, The Word of God has an urgency about it. Um, When we hear His voice, the Bible says, harden not our hearts. That's the day of salvation. The Holy Spirit, when it speaks to us, that's the important time to yield. And we looked last time we were together at the stillness of the Word. Elijah perhaps began to depend upon great um, manifestations of divine power. Like we might be tempted to start to depend upon great sermons or an amazing worship experience, something that sort of shocks our senses. And Elijah was reminded God's power was not to be in that fire, that wind, or that earthquake. God's power, the presence of God speaking to Elijah was to be in the still, small voice. And we need to be still and know that God is speaking to us. In our busy lives, we need the Word of God. Amen? Today we're going to talk about the disobedience of the word, but before we begin, I just want to bow our heads for an additional word of prayer. Father, we're living in times when we need the word of God more than ever before. In the next few minutes, as we open its pages, help us to do so reverently, knowing it's your word, the creator God, speaking to us today. Thank you for preserving it in so many manifold ways, witnesses of your protection and your safekeeping of its guidance for our lives Thank you for bringing us to this time, in this day, this week, when we can come together as a family of believers and we can hear your voice speaking to us. We ask that our hearts might be still, that we might set aside our worries and our cares. We might ask 
that you would speak to us, that your spirit would be the teacher here today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Kings. We're going to be looking at another story here that talks to us through the 2,500, 3,000 years that have passed and tells us of the importance of obedience, the danger of disobedience. First Kings chapter 12, and we're going to begin with the last part of that chapter. First Kings chapter 12 and beginning with verse 26. Now, this is the situation. I don't know, um, just, just, just very briefly. You remember after, the, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two. There was Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam had the advantage of being in his father's throne, on his father's throne, still at Jerusalem. The, uh, the northern kingdom um, was, was disadvantaged, you might say, because they were no longer ruling in Jerusalem. Now, what was in Jerusalem that would be important besides the palace, the throne? There was something else very important to the Jews that was located in Jerusalem. There's only one of them. What was it? The temple. The temple, Solomon's temple, was perhaps the most magnificent building ever built by human hands. It was an amazing piece. I I just recently heard a professor who had done calculations trying to look at 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 the material list that was compiled by David and later by Solomon and what went into the aesthetics of the temple. Materials alone. The value today of what was put into that temple was something along the order of one to one and a half billion, with a B, dollars. Amazing. An amazing temple. And much of it, I've just been learning, much of it was actually not functional. In front was two mag- three magnificent pillars that were there simply for aesthetics. It was a beautiful building. Beautiful building. So the Jews were proud to worship in Solomon's temple. And it was still a new building. And so Jeroboam, the king of Israel, he had a problem. That's where we're going to pick up the, pro- the story here in verse 26. First Kings chapter 12. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go to do service in this house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. See, this was a political problem that Jeroboam was facing. He said, this is just realistic. If, if every year when they need to go to do their ceremonies, because there were certain times of the year that the Jews returned to Jerusalem to do their ceremonies, right? There was the Passover. There was the Feast of, of, um, of, uh, of, of Tabernacles. And there was the, the Feast of, um, of um, the Day of Atonement. So at least three times a year, Jewish males were supposed to go down to Jerusalem to uh, participate in the the feast that the Lord had instituted there at the sanctuary. And Jeroboam says, wait a minute. If they go down there and they listen to the priests speaking and they see their king Rehoboam participating in the services and they have their good time there with their cousins and all in Jerusalem, sooner or later... They're going to say, why are we two nations anyway? And they're going to return to Rehoboam 
And where am I going to be left? And so Jeroboam decided that he would do something about it. Verse 28, the Bible says, Whereupon the king, King King Jeroboam, took counsel and made... Well, let's stop right there for a second. Who did he take counsel of? Apparently, it was not of the word of God. Apparently, it was not of a prophet of God. Apparently, Jeroboam took counsel of his, maybe his chief of staff, perhaps his um, head of political strategy, um, perhaps his public relations chief. (laughs) He took counsel. And uh, I think it's important for us to notice that taking counsel is good, but taking counsel of the right people is even better, right? And here Jeroboam, it says, took counsel. And it says that he made two calves of gold and said unto them, it's his people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he said, the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. Now this was what Jeroboam was doing. If the, if the children of Israel, the Israelites now, this part of the kingdom, it goes down to Jerusalem, they're going to be, they're going to be loyal to Jerusalem. So I'm going to make it more convenient for them to go to church elsewhere, right? He made two different temples, if you please, gods, and he, he placed them one in Bethel and one in Dan. Now if you look on your map, you can see these were strategically placed to make it most convenient for people to be able to go to one of those sites rather than make this trek all the way to Jerusalem. And so convenience was used as the motivation for, um, for not going to Jerusalem, but for instead going to Bethel or to Dan. Now, if we look at this, let's continue on. The Bible says in verse 30, and this thing became a what? This thing became... A sin. Are you glad the Bible doesn't, isn't afraid to call sin, sin? Aren't you glad? Sin is a thing, is something that destroys us. So I'm glad the Bible's clear about it, right? And the Bible here says this thing became a sin. We're going to look at it a little more clear, carefully and, and see why. But um, this thing became a sin, the Bible says, and the people went to worship, one before Dan or um, uh, the other before Bethel. Verse 31, he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. So what is Jeroboam doing? He's completely reinventing the worship of God, right? Notice, who did he say these golden calves were? These are the gods who did what? Brought you out of Egypt. So I would make an argument here that actually Jeroboam was not trying to replace the gods that they worshipped. He was trying to give them new manifestations of the same gods. Does that make sense? I mean, the, they all knew that God had brought them out of Egypt. They had had a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. The water had come out of the rock. The Red Sea had parted. The, the Jordan River had parted. I mean, this, these, were, these were definitely stories that had to have been very clear in the minds of the Hebrews. And so they knew that their God had brought them out of Egypt. And he, what, what Jeroboam here is saying is these are new manifestations of those gods. Instead of going to worship at Jerusalem, where that temple is of the same God, we're going to make those, um, these manifestations representative of the same gods you've been worshiping. Does that make sense? I think it may represent a, a mistake in his thinking already about going to Jerusalem. <laughs> because the temple in Jerusalem wasn't what they worshiped, was it? 
The God of heaven is not worshipped with things made by hands, stones and gold and wood. God of heaven is a spirit, Jesus would say, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. But here Jeroboam, he's changing, radically changing. You can read the rest of the chapter. We won't go for lack of time. But he, he, he makes himself a priest as well as some of the lowest of the tribes, not Levites. What has he changed? He's changed the location of worship. Is that right? Has he changed the instruments of worship? By that I mean those, instead of the temple, you have the, the calves. What about the time of worship? Look at verse 32. It says, Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the, day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So Jeroboam decided... Yes, there are these three feasts that most of the Hebrews would go down to Jerusalem. Instead, we're going to make one, you know, special feast. These are, this is going to be our feast. So here he's, he's changed the location of worship. He's changed the instruments of worship. He's changed the time of worship. He's even changed the leaders of worship, right? Because he takes the Levites out, he puts the lowest in, and he then he put, makes himself a priest as well. I think he changed everything about the worship of God except the deity who they thought they were worshiping. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that they could go to Dan and they could go to Bethel and evidently God's people did. They followed right along with Jeroboam. They went down to Dan, they went over to Bethel and they started worshiping, thinking, I'm sure, they hadn't actually changed religions. They were just changing the way they worshiped God. And this thing became a what? It became a sin. You see, God had given very precise instructions about how He was to be worshipped in the Old Testament, didn't He? And when we go against the Word of God out of convenience, we put ourselves in dangerous ground. Jeroboam was, was putting himself in, in dangerous territory here. Now, we, let's look down the next chapter, 1 Kings chapter 13, just a few verses later. And here we're going to find a, a very fascinating story. It's a story that's always fascinated me. I think it will you as well. There evidently came a servant of God, a man of God. And I want you to notice a couple of things that he says here in the first two verses of chapter 13. It says, Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the what? By the word of the Lord. We're talking about the word of God, aren't we? Who brought, what brought this man of God out of Judah down to Bethel? The word of God. He cried, verse 2, against the altar. This was the altar that Jeroboam had set up to, uh, to officiate in this false worship. He cried against the altar in the what? The word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places and burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Now this must have been startling. I don't know if, if you can imagine what's going on, but here, you know, Jeroboam has built a nice temple, a nice new church, and they're in the middle of their worship service, and they think everything's going fine. It's much more convenient to roll on down to Dan or Bethel than to go all the way to Jerusalem. Everything's going fine. We're worshiping the same God that brought us out of Egypt, just in our own way. Maybe we're developing our own culture. We're developing our own set of understandings, you understand. 
And all of a sudden, a man of God from Judah, who, by the way, wouldn't be politically the best person to say those things because he was from the other side. But the word of God, that's what we need to remember. The word of God led him there. And he was giving the word of God. And the word of God is, hey, guys, this worship is, an, is sin. This worship is an abomination. And it's so bad that there's going to be a reformer that comes, destroys this type of worship and offers the priests as sacrifices instead of this false worship, being, these false sacrifices being offered. Now, what do you think Jeroboam would think? Here he is pretending he's a priest. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He's, a, he's, he's of the tribe of Judah. What do you think Jeroboam thinks when his worship service gets interrupted with that kind of a speech? Before he had a chance to react, he gave a sign. It says in verse 3, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And Jeroboam grabbed the altar, as if to protect it perhaps, and he said, Get him. Get him out of here. Take him out of here. He's interfering with what's going on. And what happened? Two things. The hand that he stretched out withered, perhaps became paralyzed, and the altar split. The ashes poured out. Quite a story, huh? Quite a story. Jeroboam, he hadn't learned yet about the inevitability of the word. You can't fight God. You really can't. The truth is the truth, whether we like it or not, right? And shocked and scared, Jeroboam interceded, pled for help. And the prophet healed his withered hand. The sad part of the story is Jeroboam would never really turn from his evil ways. The prophet left. In fact, the king wanted a little more discussion with him. But the prophet left, and this is what it says here. The king said, verse 7, Come home with me, and I will refresh, refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Verse 8, The man of God said unto the king, If you will give me half your house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For it was charged me by the word of the Lord. By the what? Word of the Lord. Word of God is sort of important here in this story, isn't it? The word of the Lord, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that you came. So there were three things that the prophet had been told. Are they difficult to understand? What were they? Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. And don't, don't return the same way you went. Come back a new, a new route, a new, a, new, uh, a new way. Very simple. And the prophet here is saying, no, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to go against the, way, the word of the Lord that he's been given me. That's commendable, isn't it? So far, he's done well resisting. Now, he knew Jeroboam was an apostate king. Perhaps he knew. You just don't spend time with apostate kings. They could start working with your head, you know? They, they could start trying to buy your approval, acceptance. He's offering money already. Perhaps that's why the Lord didn't want him to spend time there. He wanted him to say his word, deliver the word of the Lord, and then leave. I don't know. But he left. 
He went back a different way. He was obeying the word of God. But there were two people at church, or at least several people. Sometimes I get these mental images in my mind. Um, There were more than one of the sons of an old man in Bethel who um, were at church that morning. And when they got home, they told their old dad. They said, Dad, you would not believe what happened in church today. Uh, Wouldn't you? I mean, if this happened in my church, I'd be talking about it all the way home. And I'd be saying, Dad, you have no idea what's going on. Maybe they, were so, maybe they were a little glad. Maybe they were some of those people that were going along with the apostasy, but they, they sort of secretly didn't approve of it. Still going along with it. They come, they come home from church and they say, Dad, this man came from Judah and he pronounced a curse against this false worship. And he, they told the story how the, the king's hand was withered and how the altar was torn and, and the whole story. And what do you think the father said? Where is the man? Like, I want to meet this guy. This, this fellow was evidently a prophet of God himself, of sorts. You know, Balaam was a prophet at one time too, right? And sometimes people who have been looked at as spiritual leaders in the past aren't always faithful to their calling. And here we have a man of God who is evidently sort of quasi-supportive of this apostasy in the kingdom of Israel. And so the, the sons, they went and they found the prophet from Judah and they said, come with us. He said, no, I'm not going. And the father, the father went and um, actually the sons told him which way he'd gone. And the, the father went on his donkey and uh, found the man sitting under an oak. I don't know if he was just tired. I mean, he hadn't eaten, hadn't drunk any, anything. But he was sort of lingering. Maybe he shouldn't have lingered quite so long. They found him pretty easily sitting under an oak tree. And this discussion then began to take place between the old man from Bethel and the prophet of God from Judah. Follow it with me here. It's very interesting. The old man from Bethel says, Come home with me and eat bread. And the prophet of God from Judah says, No, I can't. I won't go home with you. I won't eat bread with you. I won't drink water with you because God told me the word of the Lord. You see that phrase again? The word of the Lord appears over and over in this passage. These weren't just his own whims or wishes. The word of God came to him. Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. Don't go back the same way you came. What does the old man say? Verse 18. It's our scripture. He said unto him, I am a prophet also, as you are. And an angel came unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. story goes on that he went back to his house. He ate bread, he drank water, and ironically enough, in the middle of their meal together, the prophet of Bethel, the old prophet of Bethel, realized what he had done, and he gave a prophecy that said, because you came back to my house, because you disregarded the word of the Lord, he knew he had lied. He knew he made this up. He knew he said, the word of God says, when he had no evidence to say that. Because you disobeyed the word of God, you're not going to make it home. The story is the man headed off on the borrowed donkey and a lion found him along the way 
We're going to talk a little bit about the theodicy of this and how it relates to God and, and all. The lion found him by the way, and it wasn't that the lion was hungry because the lion didn't eat his body. He didn't hurt the donkey. He just killed the man of God. Why? Perhaps because he disobeyed the word of God, right? Perhaps because he disobeyed the word of God. There are several things that I want us to draw out of this story. I want us to see, first of all, it's important for us to study the word of God for ourselves and know it for ourselves. Can you see that in this story? Some people will come along and say, well, the Bible says, the word of God says. And somehow, I believe, we have a personal responsibility to see if it really says that or if that's just what they think it means. We should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, before we accept any doctrine or precept or teaching of men. The word of God says should be backed up by what the Bible says. And I think this story is in our Bibles today, not because, I mean, it was important then. It was important for the people to learn those lessons. But it's important for us to learn these lessons today. You know, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, because an evil, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. We think that we can get away with disobeying the word of God and disobeying the word of God because everyone around us is. But stories like this in the Old Testament remind us they stand as testimonies for those living in every age to follow. The word of God is important. It's important to obey the word of God, even the little things. You see, if, if the word of God could be disregarded as far as eating and drinking and going back a different way with impunity, then Jeroboam could say, if he can disobey that word of God, then I can disobey the word of God that he spoke to me. Right? That would be the temptation. The temptation would say the word of God isn't really that important. The word of God can be accepted or can be rejected. If you like it, follow it. If it's convenient, do it. But if not, oh well, God forgives. I believe, in fact, friends, that God does forgive our disobedience. And I pray, I just, as I think of this story, it seems like such a drastic thing. God would allow this man to die after he just went back and ate bread and drank water, right? That seems drastic, doesn't it? I pray that he repented of that and is saved in heaven, even though he met an untimely death. Don't you think God could have saved his soul even though he allowed his death to be a testimony for us, for the king, for everyone who would live thereafter to understand disobedience of the word of God is serious business. Serious business. God wants us to obey him not when it is convenient, not when we like it, but whenever we hear his voice. That's the time to obey him. Amen? You know... I'm thankful that the Bible is not just full of people who disobeyed the Word of God. I'm thankful there's also good evidence, good stories in the Bible of people who obeyed the Word of God, aren't you? I'm thankful that we can look at, at men like Abel who obeyed the details of what God said, no matter what it cost him. Noah, who was obedient I'm thankful we can look at people like Abraham. Abraham, who, it wasn't convenient to leave Ur of the Chaldees, but he obeyed, not knowing where he was going, because God's word said so. I'm thankful that we can look to our greatest example. And who is that? Jesus.
who didn't do things to please himself, but did always those things that pleased his Father. Don't you think that should be our life goal too? To say, Lord, I want to know for yourself, for myself, from your word, what is your will for my life? And once I know that will, I want to follow it. I want to follow it. You know, I'm convinced as Christians, our greatest problem is not that we don't know God's will, even though sometimes we find ourselves in quandaries. I find myself in a quandary. God, what's your will? What, which way are you leading? What's your answer to this problem, to this situation? The greatest challenge we face as Christians is the challenge to make our hearts willing to follow that will no matter what it is. Amen? That's at least my prayer today. My prayer is, Lord, I want to know your will, yes, but more than that, I need a miracle of your divine grace so that today when I do see your will, when I know what is your, in your word, I'm happy to follow it, to yield it, even if it's not what meets my natural inclinations or my personal convenience. Is that your desire too? You want to ask God to give you that kind of a heart, that the obedience of the word can be our experience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we thank you for even the seemingly negative stories that we find in, in the Old Testament. They stand as, as serious lessons for us to know the, the deadly nature of sin, of disobedience. And Lord, it's dangerous sometimes, not so much dangerous because of the persecution from outside, but because of the influences from inside. The people who say, I'm a prophet also. I'm one of you, and I think it's okay. Lord, help us to study for ourselves. Help us to know your will for ourselves. But most importantly, we pray today, give us hearts, converted hearts, changed hearts, Work a change, a transformation in us that we cannot work for ourselves. That when we see your will, even when your will conflicts with our preferences or our convenience, that we would be willing to follow and to obey. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who promises to do this in us. Thank you for Jesus who is capable of creating a new heart in us today. Thank you for Jesus who gave us an example of living not to please himself, but to serve others and to please you. We pray that he might be our Savior and our mentor and our friend and our example today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.